From the Lucha Podcast Network, this is the Mass Startup Podcast. The Mass Startup Podcast profiles the most talented creators, impactful entrepreneurs, and high-performing professionals with the purpose to drive insights, learnings, and tactics to help you build the things that you believe in. My name is Ndabe Ntle Junior Ngulube, one of the co-founders at Pineapple, and I'm the Chief Development Officer at Pineapple. Cool. And I'm Susan Glovu. Uh, CTO, Chief Technology Officer at Pineapple, employee number one. Hey, that's amazing. <laughs> but we consider him a co-founder. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Just to start off with, you know, what was the early experiences that you guys had, whether in corporate or school, to say, I want to build something that can contribute somehow to the world? Very early on, way before Pineapple and the idea or anything like that. Yeah, I think for me, that period was in varsity. So I went to Varsity, well, the University of Cape Town. That's where I met Sizwe. I went there with the plan of doing the whole chartered accountant thing. And before I got to university, I actually didn't even know what a chartered accountant was. I was just following the hype. Everybody at the time was was starting to become a CA. And I thought, hey, this seems like something dope to do. So I went to Varsity to study that. But very quickly on, I realized that that wouldn't be a career that would fulfill me. So I started to apply my mind and actually ask myself, okay, what is it that you actually want to do? And at the time, I was like heavy into music production. So Mm. naturally, I was more creative inclined. So I started to look around and see what else is happening around the world that incorporates creativity and a bit of logic as well. And at the time, that was when Facebook was gearing up to do that IPO. And for me, it was very fascinating that a platform that somebody literally built in their dorm room can go on to IPO in the States. So I... I quickly realized that, you know, maybe coding might be the next wave. So throughout my varsity career... What, what um, year is this? This was 2011, I believe. Mm. So from then onwards, I spent all my free time just teaching myself how to how to code. I was doing that sort of religiously every day. And eventually, once I graduated my undergrad, I went on to honors. And there I had much more free time. Decided to join a coding boot camp that opened up in Cape Town. Codex Academy, that's still running today. Mm. Uh, shout out to them. And I went through that program. And once I finished my honors in tax, I had a choice of whether to do my articles at PwC or venture deeper into the coding thing. And I turned down an offer for articles at PwC and took up a job as an in, as a intern, software developer intern. And the rest is history. So I think in Basi, that's when I realized, okay, man, I actually enjoy building stuff. And coding is actually the, the tool that I can use to, to build stuff. And that's where it got started for me. And like when you think about that switch at the time, did say, for example, your parents understand what that meant, why you were doing this? Because, you know, I also fell into that trap. I remember first year of varsity, I was studying accounting. I was like, hell no, there's no. What's the conversation you have with your parents to say, look, man, I actually want to build something rather than try to 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 just, you know, pursue this career in the traditional sense. Yeah, look, I mean, I won't lie to you. The conversation at the time with my parents was extremely difficult. And putting myself in their shoes, I can pretty much understand why, you know, here you are, you've invested so much of your resources into your child to go down a particular path. You know, granted, I've graduated undergrad and honors, but the expectation from them was for me to continue and actually ultimately become a chartered accountant. For some weird reason, for some weird reason, like being a chartered accountant is like the holy grail for African parents. Yo, they, man. they love that thing. They switched from doctors and lawyers, yeah, like accounting's yeah, everything. Yeah. <laughs> and it didn't help that at the time my parents associated coding 
with like IT, like the guy who can fix computers. Mm. So like they thought I wanted to be a guy who fixes computers. They didn't really understand what, I mean, there's no offense to people who fix computers, but they didn't really understand what it means to be a developer, to be a coder. So ultimately I just had to make that decision myself and prove them wrong, which thankfully I, I did. It worked out, yeah. right? Caesar. <laughs> yeah, man. It's very similar to what Dao was saying, like that whole creative knack, I guess, that, that you were speaking of. I could, like for me, just growing up, I, I remember my initial was like in graphic design. So I'd look at logos and I'd just be like, man, how do they create that? But I was a kid, like I was literally, I wasn't even like 10 years old, man. But like the only exposure I had to like software and stuff was like Microsoft Office. Mm. You know, they had like Word Art. You remember that? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I used, I used to think they used to make logos using Word Art, but then they just did something professional. And I would literally try and recreate like Omo and whatever on Word Art. It wasn't mm. even work. But like that fast digital technology started over there. And then from there, it even went to like websites. So even I remember I used to use what's this Microsoft front page used to come with Office way back. It was like 2001. I was just on my dad's laptop and just trying to make websites and stuff. I was just always fascinated, fascinated with like visual stuff, you know? Mm. And then from there in high school, I then did IT. I started to learn, okay, how to code stuff. And then <clears throat> obviously we get like projects and stuff. So I like my matric project. I went like last number, dog. Like <laughs> <laughs> all, the, all the stops I made, like the this, this soccer tournament tracking thing where like you know like a game plays you can add the scores and just kind of tracks the whole tournament basically and i remember for that project i got 97 percent because my and my teacher told me mr brinkman i hope you can see this dude was like i can't get a hundred because it would just look suspicious they just like took three off it bro and i was just like damn man damn you know it's like no matter how hard you know but then I feel like that was the first taste of like making something, right? But mm. that was like a desktop app, right? That was like an app that you just put on your, on your what you call it, using store on your computer. But then I still didn't, I wasn't like fully aware of like how web web apps were made. And then that I learned in my first internship, like after Varsity. Well, not, no, during Varsity, I was working at a, a media agency there in Cape Town. And they were tasked with making something. And after I made, I made like this, but it was with a friend of mine and basically we were tasked for like making this like heat map thing of like viewing websites and stuff. After making that, after that internship, like that's when I literally started believing in myself. And then from there, it was just like, you know, I'm going to learn mobile. Started, I spent like holidays and just learning all these stuff. And then from there I knew, okay, I can now make like anything just from the top of my head. And then that's just what I've been doing, man. Like literally, man, like and I started freelancing a lot, just making things, my own ideas, just make them, you know, mm-hmm. even now I was just, keep making things just to you know stay abreast with like skills and everything but like that moment flipped i would say at that internship like yeah do you remember the first thing that you made that you really felt proud of because i think we all try to make things you know you discover that okay you can use different tools to make things and put them out into the world but was what was one thing that you made very early on in your journey that made you go oh yes I've made something other people actually care about and like this actually matters in some way. Cool. So <clears throat> for my answer for this one, actually I, I showed it to Caesar some time back. I showed him a, a screenshot of it. It was a, a text-based game. I think mm. it was called something along the lines of Stories of the North or something. Where basically, I don't know if you ever used to read those books back in the day where at the end of each page you'll be confronted with a scenario. Mm. And then they say, 
if you choose this decision, go to this page. If you choose that decision, oh, yeah. go to choose own adventure. But yeah, ultimately, like the decision you make affects the outcome of the story. So like so, Bandersnatch. Something like that. Mm. That Black Mirror show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I built this text-based game called Stories of the North, which basically incorporated elements of the North of Joburg. So like, here's your character. You choose a name for your character. Okay, it's a Friday night. Your character decides to go to the club. When you're at the club, someone comes and asks you, you know, can you buy me a drink? Do you say yes? Do you say no? And if you say yes, it branches off to another part of the story. If you say no, it branches off to another story. But you're typically you're confronted with like typical North scenarios in that in that game. Mm. This was around this was around 2012 when I when I wrote it. Things like deciding whether to buy a bottle for the squad or not, or <laughs> you know whether to spend your credit card or your debit card. Yeah. Know, so it was like this fully fledged text based game, and when I completed it and I let my friends play, they really really liked it. They really enjoyed it. So that was the first time when I actually realized, okay, damn something that I can actually create can actually either bring joy or create value for a lot of people. And I think I still have that game to this, to this day. I must, I must actually look for it. I want to add it to the podcast. <laughs> was there a moment for you, Caesar, where you built something and you're like, yeah? I, it's something I was proud of. I wouldn't say it changed people's lives, but it was definitely like something that I was proud of. It was this thing back in was it grade four or grade five. We learned like, there's a thing called specs for Windows. It's like basically this turtle, and it basically teaches you like base programming of like how to instruct something, tell it to turn right, walk five steps, whatever. And you know, like drawing shapes and stuff. But from that, that's why I guess like I would say I initially learned programming, right? But then from there, they put us onto this other application called Game Maker, where you literally create your game, right? Like your own game, it's like two D thing. You can create sprites and stuff. I remember using that thing at at school, and I made like. Just an average game, right? But it was like the program fascinated me so much. I installed it on my dad's laptop, but it wouldn't run. But still, despite that, I created like a, a game like 10 levels long, which I never got to play. But I was like, yo, if I run this thing, it'll be the best game ever. And I spent like months building this game, bro, which I never got to run. Mm. But like I knew everything I did. I was like, this person is going to fight this boss. You hit them, whatever the... I did that whole thing like on my age. Hell, I was so proud of that thing, but I never got to run it. Like, Why? It just didn't work. You press play and I think the graphics card or something was bad. <laughs> but like I built this whole game and I was like, if I ever got a chance to run this thing, yo, so sad I didn't get to play it, man. <laughs> so when you think about like, so now you've discovered sort of the tools that you need to build things and you've experimented with building other things as well. What does the journey towards building pineapple even looked like right he got these you know internships what does the years say three years before pineapple look like to gain experience and really gain insight into building a startup finding the right problem and what it might take to build a platform that can create value for people yeah <clears throat> so those years leading up to the pineapple sort of project was basically full with just trying to get as much industry knowledge as possible so at the time i got a while well, my internship was at this dev shop called Platform 45. They mm. have an office in Cape Town as well as one in Joburg. So I started interning at the Cape Town office and then transferred over to the Joburg one where I got my full-time job. And I was there for about two years just working on a variety of different projects from e-learning platforms to online betting platforms and, and so forth. So what, what I really took away from those two years was basically exposure to how to build fully-fledged applications that can actually manage a lot of load, a lot of traffic, and ones that are actually visually appealing as well. That's one thing that I really enjoyed about my time at Platform 45. 
they are extremely bullish on user experience. Like mm. they won't let something go to production if the user experience is subpar. That's something that they're extremely finicky on. And that sort of taught me how to have a keen eye for user experience, UX, UI, and make sure that all of those things are at a certain standard before you even go out into production. So I'd say those two years are basically about me just, you know, hype upskilling myself and learning the, the tricks of the trade. Yo, it, it sounds like you had a much more difficult journey. <laughs> that sigh was like, yo, thank goodness for pineapple. <laughs> hey, dog. No. So I guess for the for the few years leading up to pineapple. So this, yeah, I think at that time. So, okay. So after, after university, right, I was pretty much freelancing. But at the time, there was this competition that we had taken part in by Pernod Ricard, mm. the wine and spirits company. A friend of mine, she was she was basically like running for this thing and she wanted me to be a part of the team just as like the tech guy, you know. And I was studying computer science at the time, so I mean, it makes sense. We ended up winning that thing and that's how we ended up getting internships in Europe. So she went to Ireland, to Dublin, and I went to Paris. Mm. And so I spent a year there. Upon my return, like everything I'd done there, like that job was just like, it was like a really nice job. You know, I got to go to all these big tech conferences. I went to TechCrunch Disrupt, mm. I went to South by Southwest, I went to the web. And my function was a, like, I was a, I was a, a developer slash business developer type of thing. So it's like make the product and then go sell it, mm. you know, at these big conferences. So it was, it gave me like great exposure around there. And... I mean, you can imagine after going through all that, like all I'm doing is I'm going to like Silicon Valley, talking to all these startup founders and I'll be so inspired and I'll be like, man, I want to do my own thing. So when I came back, which was probably a few years before the pineapple thing started, it was around 2015, I think. Yeah. I just spent like two years trying to do my own thing, you know, and I mean, didn't go anywhere, but I can definitely say that I, I learned a lot of lessons. Then I, you know, picking up the freelancing thing a bit more. Then I moved to Joburg in 2017. And then that's why I got a job here in Pretoria. And I was still doing the entrepreneurship thing, sort of, kind of. Mm. But it was basically like, at the time, my boss had an idea and I just had to run it for him and just, you know, kind of build the app and get it going. And that was literally the year before I joined Pineapple. Mm. So those last three years was just like setting me up for that. It was just like, okay. Like you're learning the ropes of building something of, you know, like entrepreneurship, like on the ground. You know? mm. So, yeah. So what does it look like, you know, day one at Pineapple or even, you know, day zero to say there's a problem. And this is the premise of most startups. It doesn't need to be yours. But I do think you have the same story is you find a really significant problem that hasn't been solved by incumbents in the market and you want to tackle this and you want to disrupt it in some way, sometimes not so much disruption. What does day zero at Pineapple look like? So I think for us, our our beginning was a, a bit unique, it was a lot more facilitated. So myself, Matthew and Monas, the two other co-founders, we actually met through a innovation competition that was being ran in 2016. So there's a reinsurance company called Hanover Reinsurance. Mm. So for those of you who are unaware of what a reinsurance company is, these are the guys who sell insurance to insurance companies. So for instance, let's take Outurance for an example. If all of a sudden every single person who has a policy at Outurance had to put in a claim, Outurance probably wouldn't have enough cash on hand to pay out all of those claims. Mm. So in that case, they make a claim to their reinsurer 
And then with that money that they get from the reinsurer, they pay out those claims. So that's basically the function of a, of a reinsurer. <coughs> so at the time, this German reinsurance company called Hanover Reinsurance, they have an office in, in South Africa, by the way, they decided to create this competition, a startup competition with the sole purpose of harboring talent that would eventually go on to disrupt the short-term insurance space in South Africa. So they tossed the offices in Johannesburg, Berlin, Boston, and Dublin, that for each of those four offices, they had to put together two teams of three individuals to basically represent the, the region. Mm. So myself, Manus, and Matthew, we entered this competition individually. We didn't know each other from a bar or so before this. And fortunately enough, we were selected to be on the same team to represent the Joburg office. So for six months, the Hanover office in Joburg would sponsor our salaries as well as sponsor our office space, such that all we had to focus on for that six-month period was trying to disrupt the short-term insurance space. And it was during that six-month period where we used a process called design thinking. I'm sure you're aware of it. Of course. Um, to basically go through the different... But please, you know, just explain it for someone that might not be yeah, familiar. Yeah, so basically design thinking is a methodology used to basically facilitate disruption whereby you start off by finding sort of the needs of the customer. And once you found those needs, you start to ideate solutions for those needs. And eventually, once you've ideated a solution, you start to prototype and extensively test that prototype with potential customers with the end goal of eventually getting to a solution that has buy-in from all stakeholders. Mm. So that's, the, that's in essence the process of design thinking. So that's what we followed throughout that six-month period. And eventually, after that period, that's when we ended up with the concept, which is, which is now known as, as Pineapple. Then at the end of that six-month period, all teams were flown to Hanover, Germany to pitch their solutions to the Group Exco of the reinsurer. And whichever idea they saw potential in, they'd eventually help to basically mature that idea with the end goal of eventually investing in that idea. So that's sort of the, the path that we, we followed. And that's the, the origin. And you don't really hear about like a lot of startup competitions, you know, ending up with a solid product that goes into the market and actually like drives impact. Mm -hmm. What do you think it was about the way that this program was structured that actually led to you guys being able to, you know, actually come out with something that was, you know, feasible, but also, you know, something that could drive impact and create value. So the Hanover Regroup is one of the early groups that was involved in Discovery when they first launched. And also from a head office point of view in Hanover, these guys know that's the South African region as a place whereby innovation thrives in the insurance space. So already there was buy-in from head office level that, hey, People in South Africa are very innovative when it comes to insurance and the customers are willing to try new products when it comes to insurance. And it really helps that they were there at the beginning of Discovery's journey to actually see what Discovery started out as and where they ultimately ended up as today. Mm. So with that in mind, they, they really were willing to back anything innovative that came out of South Africa. Mm. And through the sort of design thinking process and you guys coming together, what was the big problem that you guys felt needed to be solved and how did you guys go about that so definitely fairness in the insurance space and ease of access to insurance products so starting off with with fairness so when an insurance company pays out a claim it is typically perceived that whatever claims that an insurance company doesn't pay out that money goes into the back pocket of the insurance company as profit therefore customers have the perception that insurance companies have an incentive to deny your claim because it means more profit for, for them. Mm. So what we realized was that, hey, 
there's actually a conflict of, of interest here. And because of that, you're going to really struggle to get customers to trust your, your product. So what we did was we facilitated a fixed fee model for our business, whereby we take a percentage of premium and whatever is left after that goes towards paying claims for mm. customers. And if there's anything left after paying claims, we give that all back to the customer. So immediately you can see that we've removed the conflict of interest. We actually have no incentive to deny your claim. If a claim is valid and fair and above board, we will pay it out. So that's the, that's the first pillar. The second one in terms of ease of access. When it comes to accessing insurance products in a digital, insurance products, sorry, in a digital manner, before we came out as Pineapple, as our app-based approach, it was very difficult to purchase insurance online. Now you'd have to go through this long, drawn-out process where you have to fill out a lot of forms so on and so forth, or you basically just have to click a button and somebody has to phone you. There wasn't really a fully immersive digital experience in terms of purchasing insurance. And at the time, a lot of people were very active on their cell phones. Instagram was blowing up, Twitter was blowing up and so forth. So we realized, hey, we have to follow the same trend. This is what customers want. So why not have a digital first approach whereby somebody merely has to take a picture of the item that they want to insure. And then the app makes use of artificial intelligence to basically categorize what insurance product is best suited for that item and then guide you throughout the rest of the, the process. So that's why we decided to go with the mobile first approach for insuring products. Yeah. And obviously you guys have a massive impact, especially from uh, really helping people figure out how to get insurance in a much more accessible way but also in a much more transparent way. How important is it and how, maybe this is for you, Caesar, is how do you build in these kinds of, I want to, I don't want to say emotional, but like very much more human elements into a product? I guess, and I'm sure I know that could be a few later. It's just, it really does come down to just like, you know, listening to the customer and, and even drawing from that, like your own experiences with using technology, you know, you draw from those, you draw from also just how, you know, people receive products. And, you know, there's a lot of social media now where people speak about these things and you can even, like trends and stuff. They all come from how people make use of these products, your know, Instagrams and whatever, and then it'll go trend on Twitter for whatever various reasons. But you pick up from these things, you know. We also draw from our own, you know, personal experiences of using these things. And but I think like quintessential more than anything, man, is just like listen to the customer, just listen to the person. What is it they want? You keep in tune with that and that and you know you've got to unlock. I feel like most of these financial services right now in South Africa, I think that has really been the big thing that's been missing. It's always just been like you're doing the transaction and that's that. No one's actually like appealing and trying to listen to the to the customer in terms of what mm. they want and user experience. Like you know, that's like number one at Pineapple. Like we we're just not gonna compromise on that. We do our ultimate best to get there, and we just thoroughly believe just listen to the customer. Mm. Yeah. And how do you go from okay, we've identified the the problem that we want to solve, and this is what the solution could be in terms of telling the story and saying that, to okay, now it's actually a product. What does that flow and process look like? Okay, so that's like... The and I know now we have to think <laughs> out, right? This is where it gets technical. Don't say words like API. You know, because what I'm trying to get to is like, I think a lot of people have ideas. Ideas that uh, are easy to come by. And you think you found a really great problem that you want to solve. and But translating what you're seeing in the world and the human experience 
into a product is something I think is not as common as we think it is. And it's very complicated. So what does that flow or process even look like? No, 100%, man. And what I will say is that technical people are not good at that. You know, like mm. all technical people focus on like people like myself and, and we just want to code, bro. Like, mm. but when it comes to translating the human element, it gets a bit tricky. But I, that's, that's one thing I would like to say that where me and him, like specifically us stand out, we, within the tech community, that's something that we're very passionate about and we really keep at the core of everything we do. But it's like, yeah, it's not something that you'll do alone. There are people who understand these things, you know. On our side, we have like, you know, our operations team where we've got people who are like, who, who like analyze data so you can actually see like how people are using the, the platforms, things they like, etc. We've got on our marketing side, man, like, you know, Nicole and that whole team, like UX experts, man, like, you know, people that really understand like that, mm. that, that side of the human touch. It requires a collaboration throughout that whole flow. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Typically, we'll start with a discussion on that side. And then from there, you'll kind of meet the requirements of, okay, this is what we need. This is how it should look. They'll come in designs like, okay, we're going to have the flow look like X, Y, Z, et cetera, et cetera. From there, it gets sent over to us. And then we'll then start with the execution. Us being the, the program team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then from there, that's where the execution happens. But what's quintessential is that even during that process, the communication still happens. Mm -hmm. It's very easy for a technical person to implement something incorrectly, just due to like misunderstanding, mm -hmm. which is what the, the 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 marketing design team will definitely will understand much greater. So yeah, that collaboration is extremely important. Never think you can do things by yourself. Oh wow, that's very important. Mm -hmm. So. You know, you guys have figured this out. You're starting to build the product. How do you start to recruit a team that can do that? Right? And this is a very selfish question because I do think that a lot of founders are struggling with this, right? Like mm. you might have a great idea, amazing product that you're already starting to build out as the co-founders or employee number one. <laughs> what does building a team look like? Look, I'll be very honest with you. There's no silver bullet when it comes to building a, an effective and productive team. I think it's something that you, you can only get better at by making mistakes. So for us at Pineapple, we've had to have our fingers burnt a bit in terms of sort of, sort of the wrong hires here and there just to get a sense of what works and what doesn't work. But I think your first line of defense when it comes to building a good team is the, the caliber of questions that you ask at the interview stage. I think at the beginning, we were tilting more towards sort of abilities, technical abilities, cool, can this person do X, Y, and Z? Can they? Okay, cool, let's bring them on board. And we, we really ignored more of the softer skills side of things. And as a result of that, we, we got our fingers burnt quite a bit. So having gone through that, now we know how to pretty much balance out that interview process with the right questions that allow us to find the the, the suitable candidates but also we have different levels of interviews whereby different people in our exco team have oversight of this person who's interviewing and that way you can get more of a collaborative view mm. on this person so maybe if there's something that i might not have picked up on susan susan might pick up on it in his interview with this candidate so it's like a multi-filtered layer sorry a multi-filtered process for you know picking out the the right candidate but 
I think you can only get there once you've made mistakes and you realize what works for your company and what doesn't work for your company. As I said, there's no silver bullet. You just need to figure out what you're looking for and what works and just stick with that. Yeah. And, you know, South Africa's got a massive challenge with tech talent specifically. Mm. Would you say there's a different perspective or thinking that needs to be applied to getting the right tech talent into your team? Yeah, definitely, man. I think, like, just in my own personal experiences, like, you can see just at how, like, times have changed, you know, mm. and I guess, like, how the tech talent has also changed as a whole, you know, just purely because of the landscape of the economy and, like, the industry itself, you know. And with more and more bigger companies coming out there, like, you know, developers are just looking for, like, different things over the time, you know. You would find once upon a time, you know, people are very, like, career-driven, looking for, like, you know, just being challenged, etc. Nowadays, you can just find people who just, you know, they want the, the highest bidder, you know, and all these things kind of come into factor, you know, when you're trying to make these 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 decisions. So there's just so much that's happening within that realm, and like, and it, the the trick really is just to keep up, of which we're we're also trying. Like, I don't think anyone has has got that thing unlocked, but mm. it's just a matter of just trying to keep up with like how the industry's looking now and what people are looking for. Would you say that like you know? when it's not just about compensation anymore and people know that there's enough opportunities at much bigger companies and stuff like that. Is that where stuff like culture in the, in the organization, mission and vision, those things become much bigger incentives than, oh, you guys can pay me exactly what I want and I can come in and do the job and be done with it. So before I answer your question, I just want to take a step back to the previous question that you asked about the tech talent pool in South Africa. I genuinely believe that the tech talent pool in South Africa is much bigger mm. than people believe that it is. It's just that for a large percentage of those developers, recruiters or companies don't create a conducive enough environment whereby these guys can thrive in the interview setup. So I'll give you an example. One thing that myself and Cesar are extremely bullish on is interviewing people in their home language. And this is something that the Afrikaner community does extremely well. If you are an Afrikaner dev and you go to a job interview in Pretoria or Centurion, chances are you can get your interview done in your home language, which is Afrikaans. This is your home language. You're comfortable in it. You can basically put your best foot forward. But if you're somebody who, you know, your home language is an African language, you're forced to basically interview in English. So already you're starting at minus 20 based on your proficiency in English. And the problem is that a lot of people, they aren't able to see past that. They see proficiency in English as a measure of your intelligence, which is not the case at all. We have hired a lot of extremely intelligent individuals strictly based off of allowing them to interview in their home language and giving them the opportunity to put their best foot forward. And it's a pity that a lot of startups and businesses in South Africa, when they're trying to hire tech talent, they, they don't do that. So what ends up happening is that they might get somebody who's extremely talented, but because his home language might be Isizulu or Sutu, they can't put their best foot forward. So they end up crashing out in the interview process. And then the conclusion is, oh man, there's not enough tech talent in South Africa. But it's okay. there. It's just about giving people the opportunity to put their best foot forward. So yeah, that's something that we do actively at Pineapple to, to this day. Would you say this is one of your values? Yeah, definitely. 100%. It definitely is one of our values. Mm. Mm. We even, so, yeah, we push it on the sale, like on the sales floor. We tell yeah. them, you speak to the client in their language, how, and 
like it's a very very diverse team of pineapple like it's mm. true it's something that we proud pride ourselves on yeah actually glad you mentioned that yeah so it segues into the second question that you're asking in terms of retaining talent so if you have a work environment that is like that that sees you as an individual an individual who comes with a, a unique background unique language a unique perspective you know, you're more likely to stay longer than than not because you feel valued and that's something that we see with our our dev team now you know our staff retention is extremely strong with our dev team right now because of that environment that we've been able to to create where people can be that genuine true self there's no need for code switching you can literally speak your home language you can communicate to other myself or Caesar in your home language and we'll we'll understand you and that allows you to put your your best foot forward that's so powerful that's actually insane. <laughs> I really hope people listening to this are going, well, hold on. Yeah. You know, because I do think like, you know, everyone goes, oh, this is how Silicon Valley does it. This is how we should do it. Because, mm. you know, you speaking about multiple interviews and one of them being a culture interview, for example, like sending someone some sort of task to challenge them from a technical perspective. All those things seem, you know, just like, oh, this is just business as usual. But treating people as individuals and going, hey, you might be able to really, you know, communicate the value that you can create if we just spoke to you in your home language versus... It's simple. Yeah. It's literally simple. Do you want to talk to the values that you guys, the other values that you guys have as well as a company? Yeah. So our overarching value is fairest of them all, both from an external and an internal point of view. I'll start off with an external point of view. So we always want to make sure that we are treating our customers as fairly as possible. And this ties back to our whole business model where it's a percentage-based business model. Therefore, we have no incentive to deny or turn down claims. We want to treat customers as fair as possible. Now, this relates to an external point of view. Now, when it comes to an internal point of view, what we like to say is that at Pineapple, we adopt what's known as a, a hierarchy of competence. So that means that there is sort of a level of this, this hierarchy at Pineapple, but it's based off of competence. So what that means is that if you are somebody who joins at Pineapple and you can quickly prove that you're competent enough at your job, you'll climb up the rank very quickly, as opposed to other companies that rather adopt a hierarchy of power where they say, okay, no, that's your manager. And no matter what, you, no matter what he or she says, that's what goes. You could be more competent than your manager, but in a system of a hierarchy of power, you'll never be allowed to flourish because it values the person who has power. But when you adopt a, a system that is a hierarchy of competence, then anybody has upward mobility just as long as they can prove that they're competent. And that really empowers them. It really tells them like, hey, listen, the power is in your hands. The ball is in your court. If you can prove that you're competent at what you do, we will definitely sort of give you a, a promotion and keep promoting you as you go up. So I'd say those are the two facets of our of our culture. That's so powerful. Do you have to have a very different approach to culture and values when it comes to technical teams? Because I always, I've worked in a couple of startups and it always seems like, you know, technical teams fell outside of the other, the rest of the company. You know, I think that startups have a, a bias towards people that are more technical because they're building the product and the product is what the company mostly is, right? How do you approach those things in at Pineapple? I see the point that you're making and I actually agree with you. I guess 
is like a sort of arrogance, I guess. Like oh, yeah. Oh, no. Technical people. Listen, <laughs> developers walk different. <laughs> In the world, they're nerds. In startups, they're the boss. You go, oh, damn, the developers are coming. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, that's the part. Yeah. No, that's yeah, the like, part. Yeah. He's, coming, he's coming. He's coming. <laughs> No, I can definitely, I can definitely, like, I know that that arrogance firsthand and it's always ticked me off just on a personal level. It's just, it's not conducive. I just don't feel like it, it adds, it helps anyone. You know what I mean? At Pineapple, we definitely don't push that. One of the, like, I guess, the qualities that we look for in hires throughout the company, but I know we do it very much in the dev team. We want people who like, they, they're going somewhere. You know, mm. like one of the things we ask a lot is like, where do you see yourself five, 10 years time? What do you want to do? Where do you want to go? And it's okay if you don't know, like we'll help you figure out, but just so as long as you want to go somewhere, because that's like the ethos. And that is how you work with like determined, hungry people. Mm. Because as ourselves, as a culture, as pineapple, like we're hungry. Mm. We're also building a company here. Like we're moving like up and up. You can see like, that's the results of like all the efforts that come out of like our hunger, our determination to get somewhere. And we align like everything there. And I feel like at Pineapple, everyone across the company has that same quality. And that's why we all align on a culture basis. And you won't find situations where the dev team is like, screw you guys, we do this and that. Yeah. Because we're all going the same direction. Well, we all want to get somewhere. You know, mm. and that's how we'll help each other. So that's the common thread in terms of the culture. Yeah. Mm. So I, I think we've gone on internal very deeply now. <laughs> Unfortunately, like, as someone that wants to, you know, build something that matters, that's the stuff that really gets me excited. But I want to just like switch focuses, right? And, you know, the early days, you guys have built the product, you're going into the market now. What does it look like to introduce people that have very traditional relationships with insurers where I don't know what's happening? I don't necessarily understand the contract. Most people don't even read them, you know. For you guys to go, hey, full transparency, this is what you're getting. Full fairness, this is what it means. How difficult was it or easy to get people to test out the product, to give it a shot, just to say, you know what? I actually want things different for myself. Yeah. Look, I think for us, the journey wasn't the easiest, but we had a few tricks up our, up, up our sleeve that really helped make it a bit better. So I'll give you an example of two of them. So while we're developing the app, we had your typical landing page on our website where people could basically go and enter the email address and be put onto a waiting list that will notify them once Pineapple launches. But we did something a little bit different with our waiting list. So once you punch your email address into that waiting list, you basically, you're presented with a number, which is basically your number in the queue where you line up in the queue from the, the front. And we allow you to share that number across your, your social media platforms. And the more you shared it, the closer you'd get to the front of the queue. So we're basically allowing people to gamify that whole process and mm. helping us by driving more traffic towards that landing page. So by the time we launched the app, we already had a couple thousands of people on that waiting list. So we had a pretty healthy mailing list to shoot off invites to download the, the app to. And I think the second thing that we did, which was quite brilliant, was there was like a guerrilla marketing tactic that we, we used. So on the day when the app went live, we pretty much purchased, I think it must have been about 60,000 pineapples, like the actual fruit. And across the various intersections in Joburg, Pretoria and Cape Town, we're basically handing out these pineapples with a flyer, a pamphlet that accompanied that pineapple. But in one of those pineapple, in one of those pineapples, sorry, 
we hid a, a prize, which was a ticket for a holiday in Brazil, I believe. Mm. And that really helped us get a lot of traction. So on the morning when we launched, now all across Joburg, Pretoria and Cape Town, there's these people at intersections handing out pineapples. And obviously people are curious as to what's going on. So at that time, I was busy driving around between the different depots just to you know monitor how the, the whole process is going. And I was listening to Power FM. And they were talking about insurance at that very moment. Mm. So I called in and I was like, hey, listen, I, I know you guys are talking about insurance, but we just launched a new insurance offering today. Can I come to the studio to give you guys pineapples? So they thought it was a bit funny, but they said, hey, come through. And when I actually got there and I had a big box of pineapples, they were like, actually, you know what? Let's put you on air. And they literally put me on air that day. So I had about 15, 20 minutes to market what pineapple is about. That's and insane. About it. And, yeah. <laughs> and we saw a massive spike in our downloads that day. It was really, it was amazing. And remember Metro FM as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think all that say. Well, that same day, I think we went there and then mm. they invited us like the next day or something. Yeah, yeah. So it was just like, yeah. just catching legs that whole thing. No one speaks about these things. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we literally went to Metro FM with a box of pineapples. Then we're like, hey, you guys. And go. I feel like, and, you know, now we can sort of speak to, you know, what you guys most recently did, like around November, December, where you've sort of kept the same spirit to go if we're going to be different in terms of how we do insurance, we're also going to be different about how we speak about insurance. And, you know, we've seen all these amazing billboards with incredible copy that went goes completely counter to what everyone else in the industry is doing. And mm. this speaks to the product as well, very much counter to what most of what the industry is doing. And maybe they've caught up and they're starting to sort of embrace technology a lot more. What's the motivational thinking that influences how you guys think about marketing, how you think about branding, how you think about reaching customers in more authentic ways than just the generic, you know, just enjoy your car, just enjoy your phone, just enjoy your house. What informs that thinking? Yeah, well, first, before I answer that question, just a shout out to our ops and marketing team. That campaign was as a result of the hard work. Really appreciate everything that they did to get that out and to get it rolled out. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> marketing teams at startups need to get way more attention. <laughs> I have no 100%. Shout out but, Nicole. Yeah, shout out Nicole. She's, she's our CMO, Nicole yeah. Shub. So I think for us, we when we were putting together this campaign, we, we always knew we didn't want to go down the typical narrative that insurance companies have been adopting on the billboards, which is purchase vehicle insurance for as little as X, Y, and Z. It's almost as if, you know, those type of billboards just go right past you. They, they just go right over your head. You don't really pay attention to them unless you're actually, unless you're actually for looking it. for, uh, mm. looking to buy insurance. What we wanted to do was we wanted a campaign that would start a conversation and get people's curiosity sparked. And we're very intentional in making sure that this campaign was focused more towards the, the top of the funnel and not trying to drive people down the funnel quite yet. So very awareness orientated and so forth, getting people acquainted with who we are and our brand. And we knew that if we wanted to do that successfully, we had to adopt a, a different tone. And we decided to go with the whole self-deprecating tone because that's something that people, that's something that will be memorable for people and will stick in, in their minds. So yeah, that's, that, that basically you know, drove why we went down that, that decision. And you know, it worked and we're really grateful that it worked. And we, we really appreciate it to everybody who took part in that campaign. Can you speak to some of the numbers of like ridiculous results that you guys got from it? Yeah, I can speak to our website traffic. I think within that first week when 
the above the line campaign went live, I think we experienced like a two hundred percent increase in web. I think it was in the thousands, two, bro. Yeah, two, yeah, was it two thousand? It was in the thousands yeah. somewhere. Yeah. I'm gonna find the right right number and put it in here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember it was in the thousands. Yeah, we, we weren't talking hundreds that yeah, day. Yeah, it, it was a ridiculous <laughs> amount of traffic that yeah. came came through to our, our website just off the strength of that campaign. So uh, we're really appreciative mm. that it worked. And like, it's so interesting. You guys have this approach that is so different from everyone else. Mm. How do customers react? And what's the relationship they've had with you? Over the number of years you guys have existed, do they evolve with the platform? What's the experience that they're having, you know, as you guys grow, as you add features, and as you guys sort of make the product what you eventually want to see it as? Yeah. So the question that you asked now is a very interesting one because it informs sort of the initial product that we decided to go to market with, which is basically, it's called an all-risk insurance product. Basically, this is the insurance for your everyday items like your know, cell phones, jewelry, gadgets, and et cetera, et cetera. Basically, all portable devices. So we decided to initially launch with insuring those products because A, those products are very sort of you know low in value and B, people will be more willing to try out a new service with these small items. And basically, this gave us an opportunity to get the trust of the customer. I think if we launched with motor insurance off the bat, people are a bit more wary of who they insure their vehicles with because that's a, a high ticket item. So you're not you're not willing to take risks with who you insure your, mm-hmm. your vehicle with. So we decided to start off with this all risk insurance approach because we wanted to build the trust of our customer base and basically get them acquainted with the pineapple way of doing insurance. And only after some time had elapsed, we'd eventually introduce motor insurance once people actually understood how our product works and they're familiar with it and the trust was there. Then we rolled out that motor insurance product and people started purchasing that motor insurance product. How would you say the product has evolved from that sort of early version where you went, okay, we're just going to start with much you know, smaller items versus where it is now? What is it now and what can people really expect in the future as well? Cool. So currently we're selling, we have two products out there, which is obviously our short-term oil risk and then motor products, right? The motor product was always there in the plan as we have other ones in the plan as well, you know. But like Nda said, we did try to go, we did start with the Aura's product for the, 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 the reason that he stated. Its evolution has been very interesting. It's been nice to watch. What's, what's kind of key to mention is that the platform itself, like the app, was very small. Like, I mean, when you offered one product, it was just take a snap of the picture, insure, and then you can claim. Then you've got the, the, the social part where you can obviously add connections, etc., etc. And from there, just bit by bit, it's been growing a lot more. Obviously, the major feature was adding the card, the, the motor insurance product. So that's obviously added another dimension. But since then, it's grown even further. We have a whole reward system, you know, mm-hmm. which Ndawa which also, you know, he led forward. We've now got like a web platform where you can then, you know, p- uh, get your insurance over there. We've got a lot of internal stuff as well. We've got a whole lot of back-end services. We've mm-hmm. got things with dealerships. We've got, there's so much like happening there. And just, it happens quickly, like, mm-hmm. you know, because they just, it's kind of weird, man. Like when you watch it, it just comes as requirements. Like it's from the ops team. It's just like, hey, we need this. And then you'll do it. Okay, we need this. You do it. You do it. You're so caught up in the work. You actually like, you never really stop it back and look yeah. at like what, like everything that's there right now, you know. 
Mm. And I guess that also then creates the demand for the team to grow as well. Mm. And that you're literally just watching the business grow. Yeah. And there's still so much in the pipeline. It's like, it's scary, man. But like, <laughs> it's also like exciting. You know what That's I mean? That's true. Yeah. That's true. When you think back at when you started, what did you hope the impact would be on people? And do you think you're on the way to achieving that? Or what does it look like to getting closer? I think for us, what we really wanted to achieve and we still hope to achieve it is basically take insurance back to its first principles and have people trust insurance the way insurance was meant to be. And I'll give you an example of that. So the the formative years of insurance was, if I'm not mistaken, around the 1800s where a bunch of sailors, essentially, they all got together at a cafe in the UK named Lloyd's of London, which is now one of the biggest insurance companies in the UK. So they got around a table and they basically were all discussing the upcoming voyages, the, the upcoming journeys that they were all going to embark on. And on a piece of paper in the middle of the table, they all wrote down all the items or positions that they stand to lose if the ships were to be involved in a, a wreckage. So one by one, they wrote their names underneath each other and wrote the associative risks that they could lose if the, the ship sunk. Actually, that's where the term underwriting comes from. Mm. So essentially, at the end of this exercise, all the sailors were like, okay, guys, look, why don't we all put together money into this kitty? And if any of us is involved in an accident while we're out at sea, this kitty will help to restore you, right? And the fundamental difference between insurance back then in the form of those sailors versus where insurance is right now is that that level of affinity has been lost whereby you can actually choose your own circle of people that you want to share risk with because you know them, you trust them. So mm. for instance, taking it back to the example of the sailors, if they'd say there was a sailor named Jack Sparrow who was a raging alcoholic, if he tried to come sit at our table and ask to also sort of insure amongst us, we'll be like, no man, like you're always drinking. The chances of you being involved in the ship are much higher. Are much higher. So we're not going to share risk with you. So that's the basically the first principles of insurance. And ultimately, we want to take insurance back to that whereby you can ultimately sort of choose who you want to share risk with and be fully isolated from the actions of people outside of your, your circle. And it's a long-term goal of ours, and we'll definitely get there. You know, I, I look at what you guys have done, and I ask myself, what would it take for someone else to be able to, you know, build to the level that you have? And... As a final question, what advice would you have to someone else that wants to build something that matters, that has impact, that solves a problem, that creates value? Yeah. Whether from a technical perspective or a human perspective, what advice do you have to some young kid that's listening to this mm -hmm. and going, damn, those are two black guys. And, you know, I'm not just characterizing you that for, for sakes, but because it matters, right? There's a kid that's never heard of this, that mm -hmm. doesn't know that there's guys like you that look like him that can go down. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> that guy can build something. Yeah. Like, what would you say to that kid? So to answer the first part of your question of what does it take to build a product like this, it all boils down just to a great team. It literally all boils down to a great team, a team that has people who have skills that complement each other. You, you'll never be a complete human being. There's always you know, aspects of yourself that's where you lack and there's other aspects where you excel. So you wanna be in a team with people who complement 
where you lack, but allow you to thrive where you excel. So it definitely takes a team. You, you can't do something like this alone. In fact, it's, I think it's impossible to do something like this alone. In terms of advice that I'd give to a kid who looks like me, I'll, I'll, I'll tell, hey, it's actually two, there's actually two, you know, parts to this question. A, is that, you know, your wildest dreams are possible. And B, you just need to believe in yourself and put in the, the hard work and the action. And, you know, just don't take no for an answer. I think when it comes to like the startup space, it's easy to get inside your head a lot and not really, you know, be confident in your own abilities and think that other people might be more suited at a task than you because A, maybe they are more well-spoken or they use sort of jargon words and whatnot, but it's about just believing in yourself. I think when I first started off, insurance was such a foreign space for me. I had no exposure to insurance. So I, the mistake that I made at the beginning was allowing myself to be too much inside my head and you know think that the guys who are experts in insurance know it all and whatever they say goes goes but it was only after some time in the space and actually seeing how our product was growing and how people actually enjoyed our product versus the traditional approach of insurance that's actually when i saw that no man like just because somebody is an is an expert in insurance it doesn't mean that they can sort of dictate where insurance is going to go in the future so that really helped me to believe in myself and believe in, you know, in my own self-conviction. So I'd, I'd give that advice to somebody who looks like me. Just just believe in yourself. You know, you're, you're more than capable. Caesar, 100%, man. I think Gandhi definitely said a lot over there. I, what I will say, what's very important, actually, I think more than anything is just start. Mm. Like, start it, like. You can sit there and sit with your ideas in your head and, you know, kind of overthink it or whatever. But what's most effective is that you start and you start somehow, you know, depending on the skill you have, you can create a mailing list, you can do some research, whatever, but just start, you know, so that you're actually moving. And there's nothing more important than that. The fact that you just need to just get something going. And then mm. from there, you just keep at it, keep that consistency, which is not easy. But what helps with that is drive, you know. So you really just need to be determined about the thing that you're doing. And another thing I will tell all black kids over there, you're doing just great. Mm. People have learned, man, people cap in this industry. Cap. They cap so hard. <laughs> they cap so hard. Cap so hard. Especially like in these in these tech, you know, you know we've seen this. Mm. People will just talk all the stuff and make you think you know nothing. Mm. But when it comes down on paper, you see you're doing just fine, man. Yeah. Like mm. people cap. So just understand you're doing just great. I feel like you need to get to the point where you have that self-confidence very quickly. And the quickest way to realize that is to see it for what it really is. That yeah. you're doing just fine, man. 100%. Like, there are people who get away with a lot of crap. Mm. <laughs> like a lot. Jargon of, words. Jargon. They're just confusing you thinking, mm. you're this person. Just toss as much. Yeah, you know, 100%. They won't see you. Amalgamates. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Precipitation. <laughs> Precipitation. People just capping, bro. When it comes yeah. down to like what's on paper, man, you'll see you're doing just fine. 100%. So just keep going, keep keep working, man. You're doing just great. Thank you, guys. Thank you. To access previous episodes of this podcast, but also again access to other shows on our network, please visit lucha.com. <laughs>